Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacker Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. I'm Matt Schreiber, the editor of Royals Review, and uh, we thought we'd bring back the regular podcast with uh, at least some signs that baseball perhaps could be ready to resume uh, pretty soon. And so joining me, as usual, is Sean Newkirk. Sean, how are you holding up? Good, good. Glad to be back. Uh, hopefully we can get things going again, but always nice to talk to my good friend, Max. <laughs> are you uh, are you back in the office now, or are you still working from home? No, we'll be we'll be uh, WFH for a while here. Uh, they open up our offices twenty percent capacity, um, and for only those who wanted to go back. And so they said, "Hey, who wants to come back to work at the office?" And <laughs> nobody's yeah, raised their hand. That's a hard sell. So, yeah. Well, also joining us remotely is uh, David Lusky. And David, uh, how are you holding up? Oh, you know, <laughs> bored. <laughs> Pretty much. That's, that that's about the gist of it. Well. Um, what what it's is been, your it's been a long 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 journey. <laughs> what uh what non-essential businesses are you eager to to get out there and visit once uh things open up? I honestly I don't know because like the things I miss the most are things that I'm not sure I really want to go back to anytime <laughs> soon. Cuz like I really it's so stupid, but I really miss sitting in a restaurant. Yeah. Like just uh. just the act of ordering food, not having to drive to get it and bring it home, not having to throw you know all that stuff, just eating and leaving. At paying, of course, too. Um, but I really miss that. But I don't. I don't know that I'm gonna go back to a restaurant for a while, even though they're open now. I just. It seems. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, what I've really learned during this quarantine is that there is a distinction between foods that carry out really well, like pizza and <laughs> yes. Chinese food, and then foods that don't really travel very well, like hamburgers don't seem to travel very well at all. The, the bun gets it, unless soggy. you live. See, I live down the road from a place called Maloney's mm-hmm. in Overland Park. Um, I love it. I'm literally a minute and a half drive away. Yeah. Those hamburgers travel fine because it's a minute and a half. Yeah. Much longer than that, and you're dead on about that. Now, I will say, too, me Ranchito, I don't love it, but it is so good takeout. It's oh, better really? takeout than in the restaurant, just for the record, okay. in my opinion. That's good to know. <laughs> We all three live close together, it sounds like, because I live right near downtown Overland Park, and Max, I think you live near that, too. So. <laughs> oh, so yeah, so we're, we're, near, we're all nearby. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, with other businesses opening, uh, I guess baseball is talking about opening up as well, and it seems like we're at least a step closer, perhaps, to getting some baseball on the field. This week, we learned that MLB owners came to agreement among themselves on a proposal to submit to the Players' Union to begin spring training around mid-June with a target date of beginning the regular season around early July. Uh, there would be a schedule of around 80 games with limited travel with 
AL Central team is pretty much playing within their division, maybe some games against the NL Central, and perhaps a few games outside of the division, but they wanted to restrict travel. Uh, there would be a universal DH in both leagues this year. The playoffs would be expanded from five teams to seven teams in each league, with the top team getting a first-round bye. Uh, and then uh, players would or players would have to approve upon this proposal, of course. Uh, and already there is some objection, not so much to the plan, but to the idea that owners would want them to split revenues 50-50 uh, due to the lack of gate revenue if there's no fans. Now, players had already agreed uh, with owners on, an, on a proposal back in March to uh, prorate their salaries based on the number of games. So if there's an 80-game schedule, they'll be paid half of what they're expecting to be paid going into this year. But owners want to uh, claw that back even more because of the lack of gate revenue. Uh, and Union Chief Tony Clark has objected to this proposal on the grounds that pegging salaries to any kind of revenues is effectively a salary cap. Now, David, it seems like tensions between owners and players have been rising for a couple of seasons. And, you know, with things kind of icy in between the two sides, I mean, it seems like this actually does have the potential to maybe uh, cause a hiccup in things. Uh, do you see this as, a, as it was really jeopardizing the start of the season, or is this maybe just posturing by the union and, and the owners as well to kind of get the best deal in a, in a, what's going to be a, a tough year for both of them. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't really think it's posturing. Um, I mean, I think the owners have what they want to, what they want to give and the players don't want to take that. Um, but at the same time, I don't really see this jeopardizing a season. If, if the health factors are okay. And that, that's, I mean, that's the biggest question, obviously. But if, if health allows the players to play, if health allows baseball to happen, I don't see a way it doesn't happen because the owners have pretty masterfully made it that if it doesn't happen, it's all on the players and from a PR perspective. So um, by, by coming out with this proposal, by it, by it pretty much being known from everybody, even though like it really, sh- and everything gets, it gets leaked, but this really shouldn't be known. It's not, <laughs> this isn't, nothing's done yet. Um, but by us knowing what their proposal was, if the season doesn't happen, I, I, I think most people would say, well, the players didn't let it happen and, 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 and pin the blame on them. And that's, that's not something the players want to have happen. So I ultimately think something will be worked out, but it, I, I think it could get pretty ugly. Um, and Jeff Passon had a great article on ESPN, his 20, one of his 20 questions pieces, um, basically saying, don't get too hung up on the ugliness this week and maybe next week even because there's probably, I mean, there, there, there has to be momentum at some point. Um, but I mean, boy, it, it's, it's going to be really hard not to hear the back and forth over the next few days and, and be optimistic about a season. But I, I still, I still think it's going to happen. I just think there's too much benefit all around. Um, but it's, it's not going to be pretty for a little while. You mentioned the PR angle, which is interesting because I, I agree that I think the the union has been really bad at PR for for really a long time. I think it's gotten worse under Tony Clark, perhaps, but yeah. even going back to like Donald Fear in the '90s, like they did not have the public on their side in in that work stoppage situation, uh, and I think fans really held it against them for a long time, and perhaps probably still hold some resentment, even though the if you if you read up on, it, I think the players had, had a legitimate beef at that at that time. Uh, with the owners trying to unilaterally change the rules on them. Uh, in this situation, I think most people see the 50-50 split as, as, as being, it seems fair on its face, uh, and that the objection by Tony Clark saying, 
this would be a salary cap seems a bit unreasonable. Uh, I I do think that they, they the players union does have a stronger case in saying that look we already agreed to this back in March we're already taking a fifty percent pay cut and now you're asking trying to come to us and ask for more uh, you know that that seems like a, a you know a, a stretch too far uh, if you're a player I think so. I think they need to do a better job getting that message out there because I think a lot of people are confused. I think a lot of people think, oh, they're expecting to get their full salary, and of course they're not. They've already agreed not to do that. So I, you know, the the already there. I think the players are losing the PR battle. I think you've seen a lot of people say, you know, people are sacrificing everywhere. These are tough times. The players should be asked to sacrifice as well. the The governor of Illinois, J.B. Pritzker, who's a Democrat, was very critical of players today. He, he was kind of saying, why are they? You know, squabbling over money when other, so many people are struggling. Of course, he's he's doing pretty well financially as a billionaire himself. He's the heir of, I think, the Hilton uh, Hotel for or the Hyatt Hotel fortune. Um, Sean, I know you've written a little bit about baseball finances before the revenues. You know, if, if owners are willing to split revenues straight up fifty-fifty, that's, that kind of sounds fair. But on the other hand, we know revenues can be kind of hidden, uh, especially when you have teams with equity stakes in regional sports networks. Sometimes they take less money from those sports networks in order to get uh, the equity stake in there. Uh, of course, you can also hide revenues in some of those RSNs as well. Um, what concerns, if you're with, if you're a player right now, what concerns would you have with a 50-50 split, or does that seem like maybe a fair arrangement to, to kind of go into the season? Well, I mean, <clears throat> the way I saw it was like, think about it, like MLB is the only sport of, oh, well, of the three of the four major sports that doesn't have that salary cap that's tied to well, the salary cap, that's a reason because they get a, a specific percentage of uh, league revenues. And when you see – and it's been that way forever, right? Um, so you, so when you see the owners saying like, oh, sure, we'll give you half our revenues, you wonder like what their motive is. And so it, it's got to be due to – they wouldn't be doing this. You know, They're not doing this out of the goodness of their hearts. Um, they're doing it because they know that revenues are going to be you know smaller this year. Um, now if I were the players, I would say, sure, we'll split 50% right now. If we make this, you know, the, the same going forward and we always have it this way. Um, because I just did a, just yesterday, I just did like kind of a real quick estimation. And if you do like player salaries for every team, plus the health benefits, plus I think like the pensions, basically you could round it up. They get about 4 billion and MLB made about 11 billion last year, so a 50% split would get them almost a billion-ish, billion and a half more than they already are getting from salary. So, I mean, it, it's good for them to split 50-50, um, but under under normal not circumstances, under the guise of you yeah. know lower revenues, right? Well, yeah, I think you make a good point. Like the owners would, because I think Passon had an article today where like his kind of back of the envelope math said, well, you know, the players could make more revenue under a 50-50 split than they could under reduced salaries prorated because they're adding those uh, playoff games, which will bring in added revenues. Um, and you don't you don't typically have to pay player salaries for the postseason uh, other than the postseason shares. So that could be a way for them to kind of generate more revenue and more to split. But I kind of agree with you. I don't think owners would be offering this if it cost them more money to the players. So Maybe in a normal year, a 50-50 split would be good for the players, but um, probably not in, in this kind of year. Yeah. Uh, and so, I think – Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I think a good example of the owner – I mean, listen, we're talking about a group of people who agreed on a five-round draft, and the easiest – the cheapest way to acquire long-term cost-control talent is through the draft. So they're basically saying, like, 
we're going to shorten every we're going to shorten all the spending we can we're going to completely kind of handicap our long-term kind of futures in some players like they're doing everything to be greedy and i consider myself maybe one of the few i wouldn't call myself an owner apologist but i think i'm one of the few folks maybe on quote-unquote baseball twitter that's like okay i can see the owner side of this they're not always trying to just be greedy you know jerks uh and here you can obviously see that they're you know just trying to be cheapos (laughs) <laughs> but I mean, do do you think too that maybe the reason that they're offering this is to get it out there, so moving forward, it there is yeah. revenue sharing. I mean, I I think they're trying to push. I think there's a lot of agendas trying to be pushed right now because of this that they think they can get through because of the the weird season, and that yeah. that's that's where I think this comes from. Because I I do I think you're right. I think they do. I think I don't think they benefit from fifty fifty. I think they they wouldn't give it if there wasn't a reason. And I think they want revenue sharing rather than and and, a sal- and ultimately a salary cap moving forward. Yeah, it's a good test balloon because if they're also trying to pitch out the the universal DH, maybe they're using yeah. this weird season. And I, f- I forget it was, but somebody mentioned that they should use this season just to try out all the. Might have been Dan Zaborski. They they should use this season to try out all the weird stuff or all the experimental stuff just because it's you know. The season isn't really going to count for much. You know, if there's a winner, if there's a World Series winner, it's going to have an asterisk by it. So it's a lot of that where it's like, this season's basically written off anyway. Like, let's just try everything out while we're at it. Oh, absolutely. And, and I don't think that's the worst idea either for, you know, I, I'm, I'm not against it for what it's worth. <laughs> no, I, did, I definitely agree that I think a lot of these things are being floated as trial balloons when the next CBA comes up after 2021. I think the Universal DH is something I think a lot of the owners have been pushing for a while. Expanded playoffs is another thing I think they've they've kind of been pushing for. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if this is kind of floated out there to at least get people familiar or comfortable with the idea. Also, And I think there is some posturing going on here. I mean, you know, they, 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 uh, if they I think they also want to kind of want to see like how this tests with the public. And like I said, the, the players are already kind of losing the public uh, relations battle as it is. And so if there is kind of a galvanized support for, you know, some sort of, tying revenues or tying salaries to revenues, then uh, perhaps that gives them some momentum going into that CBA battle. Uh, but yeah, l- this looks like, I think, just one step of maybe, m- you know, many marching towards what very well could be a work stoppage in a year. Uh, David, do you see a way out of this? I mean, you seem a little more optimistic, I guess, than I do um, on, on them coming to an agreement. And look, I mean, they've got a lot of money at stake in playing baseball this year. I mean, obviously the owner's, if they're going to lose money this year, they're not. They weren't. They're, they're not going to play. Uh, but obviously, they see some money to be made this year. So money is a big motivator. But what? What's your? Uh, I guess optimism in, in seeing baseball this year. I mean, tr- truly, it, it's the money. And again, it goes. The, the biggest question is the health. <laughs> and if if it's not possible to play, if they don't have enough tests to test players every day, if they don't have moving on a treatment and whatever not a vaccine but a treatment if they don't if that doesn't happen then none of this conversation matters at all because they can't play but if assuming that that's at a point where they say okay we can get out there with no fans i can't imagine either side looks at the money that they would be losing and the money that they would be gaining by playing and they and they look at that and they say you know what now forget it no season so to me it just and i've i've been saying this since march really when when this all started look there's there's just way too much money to be lost for either side to turn their back on this season if they're able to play from a health perspective. And that's that that's where I've come from the entire time. And, you know, I think that as states are starting to open up, right or wrong, they're 
basically paving the way for games to be played. And, you know, ultimately they're, they're probably going to find a number that works. Um, and I, I just, I, I don't really see another alternative for them. Again, all of this is always assuming that they can play from a health standpoint. You know, uh, Sean, I was thinking about, you know, the players, the owners are, you know, I, I, you do have to feel, I guess, maybe some sympathy for them in that they are going to be out a lot of money with, with no gate revenue this year. Uh, now, obviously, they've made a lot of money the past couple of years. And in years where they did, you know, had really good seasons, they didn't exactly offer 50-50 split in revenues back then. So I understand the player's point of view. But, you know, the owners are going to be out a lot of money this year. And I'm wondering, is would deferred compensation for the players be maybe one solution where you say, you know, well, we don't have the money now, but obviously when the economy comes back, when, when we're past this pandemic, the coffers will be full again and we can kind of compensate you or at least maybe, or maybe, maybe not, you know, a dollar for a dollar, but, but uh, you'll get some of that money back down the road. Is that something that would be feasible? Are there any kind of solutions we could see to uh, get the players and, and owners maybe a, a both a fair deal? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. The deferred payment is 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 a decent idea, and you're right. I don't think it could be it could be dollar for dollar. Um, and I mean, the, one of the things I think is getting lost here is that it's. I, I think when you see fifty fifty ownership split, you think okay, players get fifty percent, great. Owners get the other fifty percent. It's like yeah, that's not. It's more so the team gets fifty percent because like. The money, you know, the five billion dollars in revenue that MLB splits, uh, or you know, eleven billion and a half, uh, you know, split into five or split half into five billion, isn't doesn't just go into you know uh, the the Steinbrenner pockets. It it gets it gets you know if you look at the Mariners, they are doing I think it was a twenty percent pay cut for all employees making sixty thousand or more. Like it does take a substantial amount of money to. Uh, to run a baseball organization and there are you know thousands of mlb employees or team employees who are seasonal or uh who are just you know your normal hr or accountant or something that are taking pay cuts you know that they also are part of that half half a billion or whatever excuse me uh five-ish billion dollar split that would potentially be happening so i think we have a bad a bad you know um reluctance and same thing for myself I, i'm guilty of it too of this idea of thinking like oh owners are being greedy it's like well there's also people who are being hurt by this beyond just you know they're billionaire owners they're multi-millionaire players but then there's the sixty thousand dollar employee in seattle who's got to take a 20 percent pay cut uh because of not their fault but a potential holdout that could extend on if you know mlb and the players and the players and the owners don't continue to play baseball you know if healthy circumstances do come about so strikes do have that ability to hurt you know others and just kind of stinks for them well and well. if if, it, if they don't come back at all the pay cuts going to be the least of their problems because yeah, they won't yeah. have a job and all like yeah. that so yeah i mean that's that's dead on you know david you touched a little bit about the player safety side of it which it's interesting that this this proposal got leaked out, and and there's there's no kind of idea of like what kind of precautions baseball is going to take uh, to ensure player safety. And I know that's something that they've got to work on. It's got to take a while to to figure out what they're going to do. But um, what's your kind of sense on how willing the players are to jump back into this? I know some players like Whit Merrifield has tweeted a couple of tweets of of like let's go, let's play some ball, and and uh, you know other players have, have 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 been kind of chomping at the bit. But then there's other players who I think I want to play. And Sean Doolittle, I think, had a really, really eloquent th- uh, string of tweets today, um, kind of expressing he wants to get back out there, but he wants to do it uh, with proper precautions. And there's certainly players out there 
that um, have underlying medical conditions like Tim Hill, who's a former uh, Royals left-handed reliever, who's a former cancer survivor, uh, who could be at risk. So what's, what's kind of your sense on what, you know, what player, what's the willingness of players to get out there and what kind of, I guess, precautions do you think will have to be taken to ensure their safety? So I want to try to say this the best, the least um, politically divisive way possible. Uh, so many players land on the side of the spectrum that I would not be surprised if many don't really believe this is much of a threat. Um, and because of that, I think there are quite a few, I'm guessing, that are just ready to go and they don't care one way or another. Um some of your favorite players actually fall in that category and you just don't want to know about it. Um, and that's okay. They can think they can believe what they want to believe. That's fine. I, I don't care what they, as long as they're not hurting anybody, I don't care what they do as, as, in their personal life. But so I, I think a lot of players are in that boat. Um, there are a lot who are not the, like you mentioned, Sean Doolittle, uh, Jake Diekman uh, tweeted the other day or yesterday. I, mean, I don't know. All the days run together. Who knows what day it is. Um, <laughs> that, the, the proposal is a joke. Um, and that's the guy who's got Crohn's disease. You know, he's, he's at risk. David Dahl is another player I mentioned in the past an article. Uh, he had a spleen removed in 2015, I think. So there are, there are probably more players than we realize who just don't care. and want to get out there for various reasons, but I think there are a, a, a handful that have very serious questions. And, you know, I'm, I'm not enough of a health expert to really know, but I don't understand how you could play during this without testing every single day. And if you test every day, and let's say you've got a 50-man roster because you've got a 30-man 30, 30 regular roster and the 20-man taxi squad they're talking about, 50 times 30 is 1,500. Um, that's 1,500 tests a day right there. And that doesn't take into account coaching staffs, umpires, broadcasters, stadium personnel, it still has to be there to help facilitate this or that, even though there's no fans there. And I mean, there's, I feel like you have to be administering thousands of tests every day. And if those tests aren't available to the general public, they shouldn't be available to baseball. I mean, I, th I think we, I think we realistically know that they probably would be. Um, I mean, we saw what happened in the NBA and when, when Rudy Gobert tested positive that nobody could get a test and all of a sudden they found a bunch. Um, and that's, just the reality of life but i i just don't i don't know how well that would fly if we don't have enough tests for the general public um to, to test everybody every single day and i think you have to i i just think with something of this nature that is so contagious you have to be testing maybe even twice a day i mean i i, I don't know maybe, maybe that doesn't do anything maybe it does but um i think i think that's the biggest step um and that's also part of why they're saying we're not going to start until june because it gives another month still to ramp up all that testing, which, you know, we're supposedly supposed to be ramped up a month and a half ago, but you know, you know how that goes. Anyway, it's, <clears throat> that's, that to me is what has to happen. And I think for the players who are worried about their health and worried about the health of their manager who might be in his sixties or their first base coach who might be in his sixties or seventies even, or the umpires who, you know, there, there's, there's so many people involved here I mean, look, Denny Matthews is going to go call a game. Denny Matthews is not young. He's he's at risk. And, yeah, maybe you could probably get away with him not talking to the players or being around them or anything because, you know, he doesn't have to be talking to them every single day. But there, there's a lot of risk out there. And, yeah, I just – I don't know how you 
start a season without being able to test everybody every day at the very least just to know who needs to be quarantined and who doesn't so uh, there's a there's a lot of hurdles to clear from a health perspective yeah, I've seen some concerns uh, in England when you know, the Premier League is supposed to start in June as well. And there's already been some criticism of, of if they ramp up the testing there for those players, that will be a strain on the on their system over there. Uh, so I think I think if players are getting tested on a pretty regular basis and the rest of the population isn't, I think, I think that will be a bad look, if not an actual detriment to our public health system. Sean, it, you know, I think we all want to see baseball come back, but with the health concerns and the strain that they could potentially could put on some of our healthcare systems and our supply chains, I guess we do have to ask, like, should baseball even come back? Yeah. Um, I mean, okay. So if I, I, there's a spectrum, I think they're kind of where it's like, whatever it is, UC Berkeley and all those California, a couple California school district of, in, um, or system, a college system, like, basically said, okay, for even the fall semester, we're going full-on digital, no classes. Like, okay, that's maybe too early of a call. Even though I'm ultra for safety, it's like, all right, you might be pressing the button a little quick there. Um, NFL still has a few months before their season would even kind of consider to be starting in September. So they're mostly okay to not make a decision yet. But, I mean, baseball should have started a month ago. You know, we're not that far off from what would eventually be the all-star break. I mean, long, kind of long point short here, we're already maybe, what, 20-ish percent, 25% of the season? I mean, it, it would stink to have no baseball, but it's not as if, like, we're delaying something or canceling something that is still months away, right? So it, it stinks that it would, you know, be terrible not to have a 2020 season. But if they we don't if we don't feel good about the safety, if players don't feel good about their own safety, if any of the employees that are needed to run a baseball game don't feel good about it, including broadcast crews and whatnot, um, then yeah, I mean we're already getting to the quarter mark of the century, or the century of the season, and we're not you know eventually we'll be at the halfway point, and it doesn't seem like baseball is going to be starting anytime soon. So it's like at some point it's going to just be better off rather than risking you know, exposure to just say, forget it. You know what? We don't have a 2020 season. It stinks, but it is what it is. And it's better, you know, players don't feel safe. I'd rather have that. We're, we're, we're already in the, 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 the window to make that decision. Yeah. It's inter- interesting. Interesting. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about um, you know, major league baseball and, and I think we all kind of assume there probably won't be a minor league baseball season this year. Uh, but then there's, you know, baseball at all sorts of lower levels. I mean, the college you know, baseball season has been canceled. Uh, a lot of summer leagues have canceled already, although I think, I think the Jayhawk League is still uh, up in the air. I think the Cape Cod League did cancel their season this year. Um, and then there's youth baseball, and we actually, my, my, son's, my son plays. We just got an email this week that says we're, we're on for June. Early June is when we're going to start games. And some of the measures they're going to take are, like, the players are going to the, – the, the, only one parent is allowed to show up to the game. And the parents all have to sit, you know – six feet apart around the, the ballpark, the kid has to sit with the parent until it's there until they're, unless, unless they're in the field or they're either up or on deck. Once they're on deck, they'll be in the dugout. They'll be the only person in the dugout and then they'll go up to the plate. Um, the, the, I think all the non-player personnel are going to wear masks. Um, no spinning, obviously no high fives or contact like that. Uh, they're going to make it so that games don't overlap. So there's not a lot of people there at the same time. 
all these precautions. And then I saw in St. Louis they had like a 47-team tournament with 500 players <laughs> over the weekend, and I'm like, jeez. Oh, so, you know, at least the Wait. league my son's playing in is taking precautions, but I guess not everyone is. No, no spitting? Come on. How are you going to not spit at a baseball game? How can you play baseball? No butt padding? Jeez. So... <laughs> So I imagine you'll see some of those precautions. Oh, the inter- the other interesting one was the in their in their league, uh, the catcher has to set up two feet behind the batter, or two feet behind home plate, I guess, and the umpire is going to stand behind the pitcher instead of rather behind the catcher. <laughs> what? So it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be a little weird. Uh, and then you know, in Major League Baseball, they're talking about doing robot umpires this year, which you know perhaps that's another so, you know, experiment to try out this year in a weird year that that may, perhaps gets adopted long term. But uh, yeah, it's gonna. I think baseball is gonna look a lot different. If it does come back this year, it's gonna look a lot different on the field. But I think we'll take it in any any version we can well, get. I, I I think that the other thing that we have to consider with any sport, any any public entertainment, is it's also good for the public to have it. Mm-hmm. And so, if now if there's back to my testing point, if there's one test per hundred thousand people, which is not the case, but and and baseball, the whole all all of the major leagues are getting a test for everybody every day. That's an issue. But if it's just a little bit of a discrepancy, I feel like you can spin it at least as saying, "Look, we want to have baseball for you, and to be able to do that, we have to take, you know, ten percent of your tests away to put them toward baseball." I think if that's the case, I think it's a different story because people, it's it's a good thing. <laughs> it's it's good to have back on people's televisions i think and and to brighten spirits and all that and so you know there is there is a point where it's okay i think that they're taking some tests away as long as they're not taking a lot of tests away basically is what i'm getting at <laughs> yeah michael jordan's been a hero lately i think because we we, we have yeah. the last dance documentary which is what the only sports we have going for us right now uh david i did want to ask you since you're here sean and i've kind of discussed this a little bit before but uh, how do you see the Royals, maybe this pandemic season, affecting the Royals specifically? I know there's been a lot of talk about how are they going to handle their pitching staff. You know, they were talking about Brady Singer making the rotation. If there's no minor league season, that probably it seems like more likely that he's going to be on the team, if not to start the year, the very significant amount of the, of the time. How do you think the Royals handle him, and how do you think they handle the other guys who could be out a year of development because there's no minor league season? Yeah, I would imagine – at least with Singer, Coar, and Lynch, and you might add Bubich in there. I don't. I don't know. They, they seem to be that he's like a half step behind the other guys, and I, I think that's probably about right, actually. Um, but I think with those three, I could actually see them saying, "Look, if you're not going to pitch in the minors, you're going to pitch in the majors." And that's another question, by the way, totally off topic. But I'm really curious how service time is going to factor in for guys like that, because if you've got a 50 man roster, all of a sudden guys who are playing in the majors are getting service time now and free agent clocks are good and wonky everywhere. So that's, that's another question that I don't know the answer to, but from the Royals perspective, I think that they would probably give those three guys a shot. And what's really interesting to me about that is, I mean, we've seen it so many times, talented players, whether they end up staying, staying at the top of the game or not, sometimes they really hit the ground running. And I'm, I would never put a dollar down on this, but in an 82-game season, if you're getting, I don't know, 35 starts from Singer, Coar, and Lynch, let's say, it would not surprise me if they if they are dominant from the start. We, you know, before the league gets to know them and all that, 
and the league really won't get a chance to get to know them because it's such a short season. They could they could put up a few more wins than we'd expect in a short season like that because of those guys catching lightning in a bottle for ten weeks. Um, again, I'm not going to predict it or anything, but I my guess is if there's no minor league season, those guys are going to pitch, so we're going to see them at the big league level. Um, and in addition, Tyler Zuber, um, he'll probably be up as well. Daniel Tillo, I think, will will get a bit of an opportunity too. So we'll get to see some young arms, which will be fun. Um, yeah, I, I don't know the, the downside. You can't really put Sully Matias, um, Nick Prado, and MJ Melendez in the big leagues, and they they really need a season of with the new development staff and all that. They really need to play, and whew, that's that's the rough part there. Um, but from an arms perspective, I think we it could actually make the season a lot more fun in Kansas City than it would have been otherwise. And and like I said, in an 82 game season, a lot of weird stuff can happen. So uh, that the Royals have that in their favor. Of course, they could also go like fourteen and sixty-eight. Um, <laughs> it wouldn't that wouldn't surprise me either. So, um, but you know, they're going to avoid hundred losses, and that that's the important thing. Yeah, that would really stink for for Sully Matias to have to look at that one forty-eight batting average for another I know. season, <laughs> not have a season to wipe that out. Um, no, but I think you're right. I think especially with expanded rosters, if they're expanded to like thirty, probably gives you more of an opportunity to put some of those younger guys on the team and you know you could even work them out in the bullpen have daniel sure. lynch go out for an inning and just see how he you know does against a couple left-handed hitters or uh, you could piggyback like yeah. lynch and coar if you wanted to yeah so i think the weird op- weird season kind of presents some interesting opportunities to be creative with player development and uh and it maybe it works out to the royals favor and we'll have to see let's take a break and we'll come back we're going to talk about the biggest what-ifs in royals history All right, well, it's What If Week at SB Nation, and this week we have an article up about some of the more interesting what-ifs in Royals history, some of the alternate universes and alternate paths the fate of the Royals could have taken had things gone a little bit different. I just wanted to take the chance to talk to you both and, and talk about a what-if in Royals history. I know each of you had uh, something you, you wanted to bring up. So, uh, you know, Sean, let's start off with you. What, what's your uh, what-if in Royals history that maybe could have turned out differently? Yeah, so... When you pitched this question to us initially, my first thought was like, okay, well, what if the Royals drafted better in 2010, 11, 12, 14, 15, 17? It's just like, <laughs> like wait a second, that doesn't work. Uh, so I, so after some thoughts and suggestion, I'm going to go with what if the Royals rebuilt after 2017 when, you know, a, a lot of the core guys left. Um, Moustakas ultimately returned, but, you know, Kane, Escobar, Hosmer, am I missing anyone left? Wait, no, wait, Davidson. Uh, so, but it, most, a lot of that kind of core team that we know and love left. Um, like, what if they rebuilt either in the winter of 17 or at the All Star break of 18? And I mean, there were a lot of, there was talent on that team that they could have sold from. I mean, you still had Kelvin Herrera, who I think was injured a little bit, um, but you could have flipped him in the offseason off before he got injured. Um, you had, you know, Ian Kennedy, who wasn't great, um, but I think his value was higher than than it is now, even though he's had a good relief season. Uh, Duffy uh, was coming off a pretty dang good season. Um, Brad Keller just started to emerge, and you wouldn't flip him anyways. Uh, and then on the, the hitting side, I mean, you had Merrifield, who a lot of us have been saying that needed to be traded for a while, but <clears throat> he ultimately posted a five-win season in 2018. Um, you had Mustakas who they re-signed and didn't flip at the deadline. Um, you know, <clears throat> Alex Gordon was still they, there. They, they traded him for uh, Brett, oh yeah, Brett Phillips and uh, 
Right yep, yep, yep. Right, right. Sorry, I, I totally left that one. Um, I was thinking that he he was worth almost two wins the, uh, with the Royals, but you're right, you're right. Um, Alex Gordon, who didn't, I don't, I think he had the whatever the ten and five rights, but um, there were a couple guys that at least like you think he could have got something for that had good first, you know, had good 2017s or were having at least a good first half of 2018. That ultimately everybody just kind of stood still, other than what well, they do, Mustakis. They did flip Herrera. Was that in eighteen? They flipped Herrera to Washington. Yeah. Okay, but he but he only pitched twenty five oh. innings that year. Let me. Was he injured that season? Am I wrong there? Hold on. I think he had a brief stint on the deal with. Uh, was it a forearm injury? Yeah. Yeah. Right. He pitched twenty five innings. Oh no! He 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 threw his last. He had a he left a game with a forearm injury mm-hmm. and then got traded. Like okay. A week later. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. That's right. Right. I was thinking like I I know he got traded, but I, okay. But there was but there were some cases of guys who like if they would have rebuilt after seventeen, and I mean some of us were calling for it would have been totally not stupid, but it would have been totally crazy if they rebuilt after sixteen or after fifteen. Uh, but a lot of us have been calling for a few years of a rebuild, and it never really happened. So that's my what if is um, the the rebuild that still hasn't happened, but the rebuild that could have happened would be a lot further along than where they would. Now, they didn't get, in my opinion, they didn't really get great pieces necessarily for everything they did trade. Um, but, I mean, you still are kind of taking more lottery tickets if you're trading a lot of those guys that, you know, we had kind of uh, have, you know, pegged to be traded. So that's that's my what if. Yeah, there are a lot of different what ifs I think you could have taken uh, with, with rebuilding too. Like you could have, what if the Royals rebuilt after the 16th season? You know, maybe mm-hmm. I, would, I agree you couldn't have traded everyone after right after winning a championship, but you could have traded maybe a few more guys with a year left. You know, like Hosmer and Mustakas and, and Kane a year before they hit free agency, or perhaps even that summer, even though they were kind of independent race. So maybe that that makes it a little more difficult to to trade them. The other direction you go is what if they just held on to everyone throughout yeah. and through 17 instead of trading Wade Davis, instead of trading Draw Dyson? Um, you know, what if you just hold on to those guys? Uh, d- does the pennant race work out a little bit differently if you have Wade Davis? I don't know. You know, it's not like they were that close at the end, but they were hanging in there for a while, and maybe Wade Davis makes a difference in some of those games and things kind of finish out differently. So a lot of different ways that could have gone, uh, and it's kind of interesting to think about the alternate uh, universes that, that could have taken. Uh, what do you have, uh, David, as, as your what if? What if the Royals never traded Brett Saberhagen oh, in, that's, after ninety uh, one? That 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 hurt me to the core when that happened. Uh, so yeah, I would like was, to see that. I would like to see. I would like to go to that alternate universe. Yeah, because I mean, they traded him ninety one, ninety two. They obviously were. They they started off. I think that was the year they started one in sixteen, which that that just torpedoed the season. But you know, maybe maybe they don't start one in sixteen if they've got Brett Saberhagen to pair with Kevin Apier, and then ninety three. They've got Saberhagen, Apier, and Cone. I mean, come on. They they lost. They, they they were down by 10 games. They lost the division by 10 games in third place behind the White Sox. They pitched Mark Gardner for 100-something <laughs> innings with a 6-plus ERA. Chris Haney made, made 23, 24 starts with a 6-plus ERA. You're telling me you don't replace one of those two with Brett Saberhagen, that they don't make up a few games? And then maybe if they're a few games closer, maybe they make a big trade at the deadline. You know, I... I don't know that it would have necessarily changed history too much, but I mean, gosh, Greg Jeffries, uh, Keith Miller, and Kevin McReynolds, they you know, they didn't do much. Um, Miller was okay in 92. Greg Jeffries was fine and brought back Felix Jose, who had a good year, I think in 94. Maybe he was good. 
Um, McReynolds was a disaster. I mean, the whole the whole thing was just it was bad. And you keep one of the best pitchers in baseball to pair with two more of the best pitchers in baseball. And that that's a that's a really difficult gauntlet to run through if you're an opposing team. So, and and then plus think about that too if they get in the playoffs, if they somehow found a way to win the division in '93 and make up those ten games. And you get in the playoffs with those three fronting your rotation. I, I mean, geez, they could have won a title that year. Truly, they really could have won a title with those three. And we'll never know because we got to experience Kevin McReynolds and <laughs> and uh, hate every minute of watching him because I was, I was uh, that that trade was made before the '92 season. I turned seven in '92, and even as a seven-year-old, I remember turning to my parents and being like, this guy sucks. <laughs> and, and it was, it, it was just awful. Um, so yeah, don't, don't let's go back in time and not trade Brett Sabregan. Yeah. That, you had a good scouting eye at the time. I remember Ke- the thing I remember <laughs> about Kevin McReynolds is that he, he only played baseball as, as a means to fund his hunting. <laughs> he would, he'd yes. much rather be hunting in Arkansas than playing baseball. And so he just kind of tolerated the baseball season in order to get to hunting season. Uh, that, that is such an underrated bad trade because like, the Jermaine Dye for Navy Perez trade, at least there was the you know the 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 money was a big factor, right? Mm-hmm. Trading David, they had to trade David Cohn to the Blue Jays in like a week because they came back from the strike and the, the team didn't really have an owner anymore, so they were kind of under under duress. The the Sabregan deal was such a a uh, unforced error. I mean, they didn't it have was to a, trade. It was Sabre a baseball again. deal. There wasn't there wasn't yeah. money involved, and I forgot about this too. Bill Picotta was in that deal. I love yeah. Bill Picotta. and maybe maybe I shouldn't have. But he's probably a player who, if I watched him today, I'd be like, get him off the field. But at the time, everybody loved Bill Pakoda because he's that super utility guy. I mean, they could have used him too, honestly. So it was, ugh. Yeah, and it, just, still, it, I, it just didn't uh, make any sense because if you're going to go for it, then go for it with Sabre. And if you're not going to go for it, then get younger players than what they got. But they kind of split right. the difference and got – I mean, Jeffries was kind of young, but he, you know, he'd been in the league for a couple of years. McReynolds wasn't really that young anymore. So, I, yeah, I just didn't – I guess – I I think they wanted to fill some holes in the lineup because the, the farm system wasn't producing like it had before. Right. But yeah, just, that, that was just a, a very frustrating trade that, that didn't really work out either. So um, still makes me sad. Yeah, so that's a good one. Um, so yeah, my what if trade what if is kind of along those lines. I just I, I wrote an article a couple of years ago about some of the trade rumors and some of these have been kind of reported as like this was going to happen it just fell apart at the last second so i just like to think about some of the what if trades that almost happened in royals history so like one of the big ones is bob dutton was on a podcast talking a couple years ago the royals had a deal for carlos beltron in, in the spring training of 2003 to go to the texas rangers uh, in exchange for a young infielder by the name of michael young uh young ended up being a terrific player Multiple All-Star games, really the exactly the kind of player the Royals love. Puts the ball in play, good contact. Um, you know, can run a little bit, can uh, can field a little bit. Um, would have been a perfect kind of player for them, but uh, they they couldn't get a deal done in, in spring training, and then the Royals get off to a hot start in 2003, and they can't trade Car- Carlos Beltran at that point, and so they don't trade him until the next year, and when they deal him to Houston. Uh, the other Carlos Beltran trade is that he was the Yankees were in on him in 2004. And, of course, the Royals were really in on getting a third baseman. They needed to get a third baseman for the future. Little did they know that Alex Gordon would be available in the draft just a couple years later, but they had to get a third baseman. So the Yankees, wanting to get Beltron, showcased a young second baseman at third base to show the Royals he could play third base. His name was Robinson Cano, and the Royals took a pass on him in order to get Mark Tian, who's a great guy, but 
was kind of a, an okayish ball player. Probably certainly not as good as Robinson Cano. Um, then there's the um, <laughs> the one I really love is one that Jeffrey Flanagan wrote a really good article about a couple years ago. Uh, the Royals were kind of shopping Brent Maine, their catcher, in the late 90s because uh, they had Mike McFarlane already. And I guess the Astros were really interested in, in him. And they offered a young outfielder who had been a basketball player at the University of Arizona, a speedster who the Royals, the Royals were in on speed. And the Royals said, hey, we got a deal, uh, Brent Maine, for this young guy. But the Royals said, wait a minute, we, we, get, we have to insist. We need to get a major league piece back. We need major league reliever Al Osuna. And the Astros said, no, that's too much. And, of course, and so they end up saying no, and they, they turn to the Cleveland Indians and say, hey, do you want our young speedy outfielder in exchange for your left-handed hitting catcher, Eddie Tobinzi? And the Indians say, yes, we'd love to have Kenny Lofton. And, of course, he <laughs> ends up becoming a, an all-star and a Hall of Fame uh, caliber player. So there's a bunch of what-if trades out there. Um, yeah, Casey Kochman was once offered, I guess, supposedly for Mike Sweeney. Uh, Kochman wasn't great, uh, so I don't know if that I would really regret that. But supposedly they also talked about a young Irvin Santana at the time. Uh, there was one blockbuster I really liked from the late 80s, about the, around the same time the, the, they made the Sabreagan deal. Uh, they, they once shopped Danny Tartable and Kevin Seitzer to the Red Sox for Wade Boggs uh, when Boggs was in, was in his prime. So a lot of interesting one-off deals that, that didn't end up happening. Some of them, I guess, probably for the, you know, a lot of those deals, the roles are so bad it wouldn't have made a difference really. Uh, but it's, it's kind of interesting to think about what if we had had, you know, Robinson Cano or Michael Young. Or, or Kenny Lofton through the 90s, uh, that would have uh, at least been interesting to watch and uh, an improvement over some of the players we had to well, see out there. But, but, okay, think about a Cano deal. Yeah, would he have made the Royals a winner? Absolutely not. But is he a better trade chip in yeah. three and a half years than Mark Tian? Absolutely. <laughs> All of a sudden, you've got a guy you're trading because you're 68 and 94 <laughs> who can actually bring you back something of value. I mean, I I don't remember what the Royals got for TM when they traded him to the White Sox, but Chris did they trade him? Or he, oh, was Chris, that was the Chris Getz deal. Chris so, deal. yeah, clearly it couldn't have been worse. <laughs> I mean, I, so yeah, I, I think that they may, he may not have actually changed their fortunes while he was in Kansas City, but something like that you can actually get somebody for him instead yeah. of you know Chris Getz. <laughs> so but, so it, and maybe the Royals make that deal. Maybe he doesn't get booed at the 2012 All Star game too. Oh, Maybe it's home run in the, in the home That's run exactly derby. Exactly. Yeah. I was gonna say, dang it! I, go, I was gonna say, who are we gonna? Who do we boo at the twenty twelve All Star? It's Billy Butler. Yeah. yeah. Then you boo Billy <laughs> Butler. In that alternate year, yeah, it's a, the butterfly yeah. effect. But Billy Butler ends up on the uh, Yankees. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let's wrap things up with our Royals review reviews. Uh, David, what do you have for us this week? Uh, so I think last time I was on, I talked about a different book than this, um, but I recently, not, I guess it's not as recent as it feels like, but I traveled and. Asked for some recommendations on books, and a couple of different people told me the same thing. The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson. Not sure if you're familiar with it, but basically it is a book. It's a nonfiction that's written um, in a narrative style that basically talks about the Chicago Fair in 1893 and um, the serial killer who used the Chicago Fair to lure his victims. Um, it's really cool book because it's sort of like, I don't know if you read It?, um, but how it goes back and forth it, it, between times. But in this book, it goes back and forth between the building of the Chicago Fair, the World Fair, and this guy who murdered uh, more than 20 people, um, lured him to lured them to Chicago because of the fair, um, utilized that to his advantage, and just goes back and forth between the stories. And what's really crazy is at the start of the book, I was 
just like itching to get to the chapters about the serial killer, you know, because he he was more interesting at the start because it was a lot of just bureaucratic stuff about Chicago getting the fair and all that. But then as the book went on, I actually was finding it more interesting how the fair was built and 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 you know the they wanted to have this massive structure. Um, and they turned down a proposal from a guy named Eiffel because they thought that he would, because they wanted to top the Eiffel Tower from the Paris World Fair. Um, but they said no because they thought that he was going to kind of underdo it, basically. So his original would be would be the best. And they ended up taking a proposal from a guy named Ferris. I don't know if you've heard of the Ferris wheel or not, but <laughs> that was, and so like stuff like that, it got, it got really, that side actually became more interesting as the book went on. But um, honestly, nonfiction book that you don't even realize is nonfiction because it's such a crazy story. Um, really fast read. I, I would highly recommend it. It's the, the devil in the white city by Eric Larson. Yeah, I like and, books uh, like that. Yeah. The Leo DiCaprio and Martin Scorsese is supposed to make a movie out of it. Um, yes. But it's now going to be just a t- just a TV show on Hulu and Mar- Leo is not going to be in it, but they are making it. So that's a little, you could read I the book watch and that. then complain about, you you can read the book and then complain about how much better the book is than the series when you watch both. So although stuff like that, I feel like television and movies actually does do well. Yeah. Um. So I think there's a chance that it could be at least on par, and and it, it will be really nice to get some visuals. Per, I mean, from my perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, good. That's good. Good to have a book review because we certainly have a lot of time to sit around and read now. So I appreciate yes. that. Sean, what do you offer us tonight? Um. On a side note, I'm working on Future Value, uh, the book by Eric Longenhagen and uh, Eric Longenhagen and Kylie McDaniel. Um, I'm only about a quarter of the way through it, so I'll give kind of a quarter review. It's really, really good if we're talking about books. Um, it's basically it's 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 a primer on how the scouting process works um, and how teams are structured and how organizations are structured. Um, it goes in a lot of detail just at the very beginning about um, the whole system of baseball and how teams value players. Um, and there's a lot of really great anecdotes anecdotes from uh, Kylie McDaniel's time with the Braves, but he also spent time at other organizations. But it's a lot of a lot of really great inside baseball moments that they talk about. You know, Kylie sitting in a draft room and. They're all pitching around, and you know, at one point, Kylie was the only analyst um, on the. Well, I think it's when he's with the Orioles. He was the only kind of analyst uh, in the organization, and so anytime they 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 wanted to reaffirm their beliefs in a player that they're scouting, they would ask him, and he'd be like, "Oh yeah, the numbers are great." And so basically, it's it just kind of a lot of cool, really behind the scenes stuff. And they talk to scouts, they talk to heads of scouting departments, GMs, just kind of all behind the scenes or, or all off the record. Um, but it's really great. I'm only about a quarter way through, so I will finish it and you know write up a proper review of it. But that is my um, kind of Royals review review. It's uh, it's a really, really good book. And you don't have to be an expert on baseball. Uh, not that I am, but you don't, you don't have to be an expert on baseball to enjoy the book. It does a really, really good job of even the little intricacies that you might not be familiar with, with contracts and how organizations are run. They go into really deep detail, just, you know, 50 or 60 pages in. So highly recommended. I'm sure it's only going to get better. And um, yeah, there's there's a lot of really good info in it. Future Value is the name of the book. Yeah, I always like those baseball books that kind of give you a peek behind the curtain and stuff you don't get to see. And uh, so yeah, that definitely sounds like one to check out. So thank, yeah, thanks for that. Um, so yeah, just mine. I mine's just really a simple one. Um, I, I'm really into diamond mine baseball. I know 
uh, out of the park baseball is like the gold standard for baseball simulation because it has really cool you know ai where you can offer trades and it can reject it or whatever and then you can play multiple seasons like within a whole weekend uh but i like diamond mine baseball just because it's kind of pared down and ba- you know there's no visuals really it's just like you're staring it's like stratomatic you're just staring at a an empty baseball field with with lineups filled out and it and you can still simulate like a, a baseball season using um either real stats or you can use um zips projections and so my big news is that you know their, their 2020 zips projections came out last week uh, i i just downloaded it i'm gonna probably i haven't had time this week to to get to it but i'll probably spend some time this weekend doing some simulations and, and seeing different versions of the royals and see how they do uh but it's it's a lot of fun it's just another way to kind of um you know pretend like you're the gm and i like diamond mine because it's you can be god you can just basically control everything set the rosters however you want it you can, you can have injuries on or you can have injuries off um so i, I kind of like that aspect of it and it's, and it's, it's more stripped down than um, out of the park baseball, which is a fun game too, and you could lose uh, a lot of time. And then that's part of the reason. It, sometimes it intimidates me a little bit to the, to the point I, where I think I have to spend like a lot of time on it to make to do it right. So I think Diamond Mine is something where I can pick up and then and leave it off and and pick it back up in, in you know, a couple of days or a week later or something like that. So just to let you know, 2020 projections are out. They're using Dan Zamborski Zips projections. I'll, I'll tell you, I'll probably do a report on that how the Royals did um, with you know, running projections a number of times, but it's a lot of fun. You can, you can simulate a whole season in like five, five seconds, really, if you wanted to. Uh, so yeah, if you have some time, um, if you have some time you want to kill and you want to see how the baseball season uh, plays out, check out diamond mine baseball. And they, it's weird. They don't, they don't market themselves at all. <laughs> it's such a good game and they don't market themselves at all, but so it's kind of my little secret, but um, yeah, check it out. Well, that'll do it for us this week. Uh, I do want to thank Sean and David for being on the show and uh, thanks to our readers and listeners. We're visiting our site and we'll talk to you next time. Hey!